0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. What are the prospects for peace in the Middle East? We'll be talking about a new book, Overcoming Retributive Nature of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, which describes a unique process process that proposes a roadmap to a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we'll talk about application to such issues, such as recognition of rights, sharing of Jerusalem, delineation of borders and refugees. We'll be talking with uh, two of the authors of this book, Amos Giora, professor in the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. Who I believe we have on the line with us, Professor Giora. Welcome back to the program.
1: It is always a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you, and we also uh, have another of the authors, Luis Vargas, professor of operations, decision sciences, and artificial intelligence at the University of Pittsburgh's Joseph M. Katz Graduate School of Business. Professor Vargas, welcome. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for for joining us. Let me mention uh, here that there is a Zoom event, a Zoom webinar, that will be happening uh, Tuesday at noon. Involving Professors Giora and Vargas, uh, talking about Prospects for the Middle East is a Peaceful Settlement Attainable. That's the title of the Zoom event. Uh, it's free, but you do need to register. We'll have uh, details, a link up on our website a little bit later uh, today. Uh, if you want to go right now, you can go to the S.J. Quinney College of Law website to, to see details there. Let me start with uh, Professor Giora. What's the genesis for this, this book? What, uh, what are you trying to accomplish here?
1: I think, from our perspective, and obviously um, uh, Vargas' perspective, is, is essential here. It's an, it reflects a uh, years-long effort on a part of a uh, small team of, of subject matter experts—Israelis, uh, Palestinians—to work together um, without the, the veneer of, you know, of official status. We were all, like we all knew what we were talking about. We weren't affiliated with, with any institution or with any country, we're not identified with any country, to try to create a workable roadmap for decision makers using this unique approach. I think you know that I've been involved in unofficial and official um, efforts over 25 or so years. What made this so unique, A, was that everybody in the room knew what they were talking about, which doesn't always happen. Two that there was this unique um, approach to it, and three that there really was an effort um, to try to create some kind of a workable roadmap. Was it always fun? No. Was there a, you know like was there emboding? Yeah, sure. Did people get irritated with each, each other? Sure. I mean, we spent nine years together, um, but at the end of the day, uh, we have a document and a book that is, frankly, a unique, but more importantly, is utterly uh, implementable because it's. It's practical, and I think that's what's so important
0: here. So you're talking about uh, people on both sides of the conflict, Israelis and Palestinians mm-hmm. involved? Absolutely correct. Yeah. Uh, Professor Vargas, um, the, uh, the title, Overcoming the Retributive Nature of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, or Retributive? Uh, I'm not sure how you—we're talk, we're talking about retribution, Retribute. right? Entrenched conflicts, where these intense emotions come into play. Well, if it's more than
2: that, retributive conflict is a conflict where the parties may do things to make the other party pay something for it.
0: Oh, that's retribution, cost, yes. It's not, it's not about cost and
2: monetary costs. about creating pains. That's what retributive means. So you don't you don't behave uh, in such a way that you'll be nice to the other party. Sometimes you do things because it causes more pain than the gains you get. That's what relativity means. It's a special type of conflict. Not all of them are that way.
0: Yeah, and so especially hard to to find a solution with these kind of conflicts.
2: Absolutely, and, and the fact is that uh, the reason why it probably has avoided uh, a solution is because the parties is always finding some sort of a, a, a way of saying, you created this pain for me, I'm going to create that pain for you. And so it has been t- back and forth so the idea here was to say, what happens if you put together people who are in the conservative section of, the, of, the, of their societies? In other words, you have to take out the extreme left and the extreme rights. Okay? You end up with about maybe 70% of the, of the people. And then is it possible to then to get some sort of an agreement? And this is what the book is about. The book is a compilation of the, uh, the results of Uh, About nine years of of work on and off, obviously, but of uh, these uh, groups of people getting together in different parts, uh, sometimes in different parts of the world, to get to address the, the issues. But they weren't just sitting there and talking about them, which is basically what sometimes negotiations do. We needed to do more than that. We needed to find out how far apart they were. And the only way you know that is by using something called measurement. And so how do you measure the pain? How do you measure the the benefits from certain actions? And that, obviously, you don't have a scale like weight, right? You have to create something for, for our own. It's called relative measurement. It's, now, I wouldn't say it's relatively new, but uh, it is, it's been around since the 70s. The first author of the book is the one who created the theory. And it just happens that I, I came to the, to the United States to study with him in 1975, and this was when the whole thing got started. So it evolved uh, little by little. He was a a pen at the time. His name is Thomas Sati. So he was the one who started with that theory. He was the one who was he was always pushing to find out why why cannot we find a solution. So so you wonder why is it now? Well, it took that long to to get all the results we got there. And these are results from the groups of people, the, the Israelis and the Palestinians. This is not something that we as also invented. This was generated through the meetings. So the interesting thing is that we have a process that allows us to, to get to a compromise. I and mean, sometimes, obviously, we may not be able to. But in this case, the people there were working to find out a solution, so to speak. And it turns out that it just came out that way. And, and this is it, the, that's the reason why, uh, if you look at the book... It starts by talking about uh, the, the conflict itself, not the history but this how it happened so to speak. Um, and then the theory that we used and what is it that you have to put ingredients do you need to put in the in the kitchen there to be able to get this to get the formula with the solution. And then you have to implement this and you have to do conduct negotiations and sessions where people actually sat in a room, and the, the parties were separated. They were not in the same room all the time because it was not necessary. And they did what they called prioritization. So they uh, basically decided what they preferred, what they wanted, and they said, well, this I would like this from the other party. People call that concessions. So they asked for things that sometimes the people thought were outrageous. But if, you, if you're carefully thinking about it, it's, don't, just because somebody asked for something doesn't mean you have to give it to them, right? It's about in, in terms of priority it may fall down the list so that's what happened and they realized that just by allowing people to express what they want and the benefits and, and, and the cost that they think they, they get from what they receive and so on uh, they, they they arrived at the compromise but that they didn't know they would be arriving at the compromise It just happened when they their surprise was that oh look at this it's actually something that is not only interesting but feasible and that's what that's what the whole book was about is when we finally got all the pieces together we of course we don't have the uh, the, the political component is, is something that is on the outside we thought that it would deserve to be published uh because it was published in pieces but not in the whole book that puts together the story of telling you see if you use this process this approach uh you and you treat your uh the other party with fairness not just as, a, as an opposing opponent, you actually can get a win-win solution, as opposed to a, what they call a zero-sum game. but Whatever you gain, I lose. That's not the case.
0: Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah, and potentially groundbreaking is what you're saying, um, Professor Giora. This uh, the, this effort is an effort to create, I think, objective uh, model rather than subjective for resolving conflict, but. Um, I I don't know that that sounds it sounds impossible. You're, you're saying it's not. Uh, it sounds very hard anyway because there are intense emotions involved here. And as Professor Vargas uh, said before, retributive or retribution. Um, you know, folks sometimes want things based on emotions uh, that the other side just uh, absolutely cannot give.
1: So you know, Tom, it, it, you're right. There's um. There's, a, there's a, an inherent tension anytime you engage in an issue like the Israeli Palestinian conflict, obviously, um, which you and your listeners well know. But the effort here was, um, and I'm not the math one, obviously, you know, I, my parents sent me to, to the law school because I don't understand math at all. Professor Vargas is, 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 you know, genius level mathematical stuff. But the effort really was to, I think, to minimize the subjectivity. And to maximize the analytical um, approach to it, based on not a zero-sum game, but but concessions prioritization. Is there emotions? Yeah, of course, there are emotions. But I think as you know, as I was in the team for nine years, and Professor Argus, as he mentions, he and his colleagues, Professor Sate, the late Professor Sate, have been involved in this in different locations elsewhere. Over the course of time, it was it was clear that the participants—I don't want to say they lost their emoting—but they increasingly, increasingly understood that this was a different approach, a different model. That if applied by by decision makers, has the the real potential to um, lead to significant breakthrough because it has uh, minimized—never say one hundred percent—but it has minimized the the, the the overemoting that's always been part and parcel of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So that, you're right, Tom. There is there is a tension there, but I, again, I'm not the math one, uh, Professor Vargas is, but you could see from the, the participants, the more they got into it, the more they got it, and it was it was interesting to observe that.
2: Uh, so actually, actually yes. in, in chapter there's a chapter in the book that talks about the lessons learned before you get into the more um, analytical parts of it. And if it says lessons learned, can the, what you call AHP, help achieve peace? But AHP stands for Analytic Hierarchy Process. So we're not going to get into all detail there because it's technical. But the whole idea is that you, you want to find out what you prefer, and you want to know what the other guy is preferring, and to find out how far our preferences. You cannot do that just by talking. You need to do measurement. See, there that is a book called Getting to Yes. Right. It's used by harbor Negotiation Group. But they just sit down and talk. But they don't, they don't find out how far apart they are in terms of their preferences or what they want. That's the problem with actual negotiations. So they think that just by sitting there and staring at each other, they can actually, that's more or less what I call the Chinese style, because that's what they like to do. They just look at you and they hope you break down. But the fact of the matter is that you can actually analyze a conflict before you even get together in a room to find out what their preferences could be, what they want from you, what you want from them, and find out when you trade concessions, what are your gains and losses, because we call it the gain loss ratios. And unless you can trade things, both of them gaining, you don't trade anything. Mm-hmm. So it opens the mind to the people actually in the, in the, in the group, in the negotiation group, so, it makes them think about why are these other guys saying this? Why do they prefer it this way? Makes them think about it. It's a quite different way of thinking. It's not, uh, it was the only reason why I stayed in this country when I came to study with my friend Tom Sati. It was because I want, this theory was being developed and I was part of it. I was just curious to find out what was going to happen with it. So, that's the whole So, I'd say the culmination, the best. I don't know if I'm going to write anything else on this subject, but the truth of the matter is that this book, in my opinion, is a combination of, I would say, almost my career, because I started working on this process uh, for a long time in 75. I think about 45 years. So the book you know, took nine that's years that's to put together, not because we couldn't write it, it's because we didn't have the pieces to write it. It had to be put together little by little as things evolved. So that's the reason why I think people who don't want to be technical don't have to read the the chapters in the middle, but they should read the beginning and the end to find out where we are, because it it is really, really implementable. The problem is, the question is, who will take it upon themselves to try to do something like this? And I think that the United States, in my opinion, the only country in the world where it should help to do this. We have not done anything so far.
0: Uh, I'd like to maybe start with Professor, Professor Giora uh, on this. I wonder if you could uh, uh, apply it. Talk to me about um, working through, or at least, uh, you know, maybe you can't tell me the whole story, but uh, working through a specific uh, problem. Um, you, you know, there are many, many sub-problems here, right, with the Israeli-Palestinian uh, peace, looking for that, you know, recognition of rights, sharing of Jerusalem, borders, uh, could you take one of those and take me through that a little bit, how the process works?
1: Sure. Um, without, without, without delving too much, because um, with the exception of Vargas and of myself, the other participants, uh, their names are 100 million percent anonymous. We will never, ever, ever disclose. I think it's important that you and your viewers understand um, and respect that for all obvious reasons. Take the question of Jerusalem. Of, again, what benefited us were three things. One, that everybody in the room actually knew what the hell they were talking about. Two, the manner in which the days were conducted is also important to address. We would meet in the morning, you know, coffee, breakfast, whatever. We would work through, the, through until lunch. We ate lunch together, which is important. We would work through the afternoon and then we would all have dinner together. Part and, part, part and parcel of the AHP approach, at least as it was implemented here over the nine years, was that teams were together from morning until evening. And that's important in terms of, of whether Jerusalem or any, other, any of the other issues, because we gained an understanding of what was important to the other side. And because of this and I don't know if Professor Vargas would agree with me, but this forced social interaction at dinner, we didn't, you know, the, the, side A didn't sit with side B. We sat together, and we listened to each other, and then we could go back the following day and begin implementing what we had learned over the course of the social interaction, even though sometimes it was strained, and there were, you know, were tensions, absolutely, but by understanding what the other side, what was important for the other side I know what's important for me, and I could um, inculcate the other side with knowledge about what's important for me versus on the Jerusalem questions. It made the, the concession process far more effective because not only did I know what I, I know what's important for me, and, and Vargas is right—not our extremists, but our you know the range of the reasonable on both sides. We were able to engage in a concession prioritization trade-off in a way that makes the the final product, if you will, attainable, because we had discarded the voices of the extremism, and we had a reasonable understanding of, of whether it's unsettlement questions or Jerusalem questions or refugee questions, what was important for the Palestinians, because we heard it directly from them, and the Palestinians were able to understand what was important um, for Israelis, because they heard it directly from Israelis. So it is a form of, of direct interaction, but unlike previous um, rounds of uh, undertakings that I've been involved in, the, the interaction was, I don't know if, the, if Vargas would agree with me that it's, it's mathematical, but it's analyzed through the lens of these concessions, which means that by, by uh, drowning out the, the extremists, you're able to come up with, with frankly, moderate solutions, or solutions that are, that are, that are, um, are uh, acceptable to moderate voices, which are, at the end of the day, the mainstream. And what we would do, for instance, you know, look at you know, West Bank settlements as compared to land exchanges. It's con- conducted in the context of, and this is what's so important here, of having a sophisticated understanding of the other side's um, desires, largely, not, ex- not 100%, but largely devoid of of over emoting and that's at the end of the day what enabled us to come up with both this document and a book that as vargas correctly says is utterly implementable that's the uniqueness of this process
2: so well, let me just yes, go ahead. in the blanks a little bit because i that's a global answer the the, the problem was uh, analyzing two two steps one was what are the main issues in the conflict and how do you spell out in words that they agreed because every word in the principles that we have here were crafted. This is not something invented just like that. They were crafted so everybody agreed on the words used. Then you take each principle, for example, the issue, right? And now you apply the same the same process we use to develop the principles to each principle. So basically each participant, each each group identified the benefit the, what concessions they wanted from the other party. So, so what does the Israelis want from the Palestinian side in terms of the genuine status, for example, right? And then they put the concessions, and then find benefits, opportunities, costs, or perceived opportunities and perceived costs, because perceptions are what is important here, right? So that allows us to find out for each principle using the same model as we use for the, all the principles together at once. because You just can't solve one principle by itself without thinking about the others. So you might want to say, I want to uh, define the principle of Jerusalem, the share on the sites and all that. The words used there for that principle were agreed, provided that the, all the other principles, uh, the, definitions, or so, so the words in which it represented what that principle was, were agreed upon. Once they agreed on those nine, ten principles that we have, they call it the principal principles, you take each of those and you apply the same approach in a microscopic fashion. You find concessions for that principle from both sides, and then you find benefits and costs, perceived benefits and perceived costs. And although it's a smaller problem, each problem was analyzed in that fashion. So that way... A micro. The whole book is about the same process applied in the micro way to get the generic idea guidelines for the, the entire pro uh, uh, product conflict, and then each of the principles was uh, addressed in the same fashion. So that gives you an idea of what you need to do for each principle to to implement it. But the principles have to be agreed upon, and in fact, we uh, another colleague and I went to to. Uh, Israel and Palestine, I and mean, like with people there, not in Israel as much, but in, in Palestine, to see if they were willing to, to live with those principles. Because remember, these are groups of people from, from their society, but they didn't know that anybody was doing anything. So it was kind of like Shaddam rules, a secretive situation. You don't want to share with everybody because of avoid the extremisms. And, and the minority of the people who read it, uh, who, who looked at them, were in agreement. So the amazing thing was that they were in agreement, but they weren't going to turn around and say it in public. You have to be careful, right? Because you have the, the younger people who may be more extreme, and they say, well, if I tell you who they were, they probably get killed. I mean, I'm serious. This is a very serious situation. So they weren't, we could not, we would not ever reveal who was involved. But we know that these people are representatives of the, of the society in both sides. And so the question is, why doesn't it get solved? I think that maybe if we give enough publicity to this book uh, in all sectors of, of society, not just in the U.S., everywhere, I've been sending it out as much as I can, obviously, um, in, in hard form, right? there is no electronic form, unless you download the chapters, um, but that would be a violation of all sorts of copyright if you download it and send it around, right? You don't want to do that. And so hopefully people will be able to read parts of the book the book that are interesting to them without having to get into the technicality and then realize that there is a way to do it where everybody will be... I would say everything is going to be happy because to be able to get to a compromise, you have to give something out too. So you're not going to be perfectly happy with what you get, but you, you are going to be... Both of them will be approximately happy. And that's the whole, you don't feel that the other person, the other party, is taking advantage of you, which is exactly what we tend to avoid. So that's basically the essence of the book.
0: Oh, well, uh, we are due for a break. Let's take a brief break right now. We'll come back and uh, talk about this uh, some more. Uh, the book is Overcoming the Retributive Nature of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. It describes a unique process, proposes a roadmap to a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. And uh, there's a Zoom event uh, on the same subject with uh, our guests on the program today. And uh, that, we'll have details uh, about that on our website. You can go to S.J. Quinney College of Law, University of Utah website for details as well. And uh, that is Tuesday beginning at noon. It's a Zoom webinar, free, but you do need to register. We'll have more with uh, Professor Amos Giora from the S.J. Quinney College of Law, University of Utah Professor Luis Vargas, Professor of Operations, Decision Sciences, and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Pittsburgh, Joseph M. Katz Graduate School of Business. More following this.
3: This is Science by the Slice. When the Human Genome Project was declared complete in 2003, scientists celebrated bits of DNA coded for proteins, but many dismissed the importance of non-coded DNA, terming it as junk DNA. Since that time, the scientific community has acknowledged that those indecipherable genomic sequences aren't junk at all. USU scientists Anna Figgins and Karen Capheim are exploring the role of small non-coding RNA in bumblebees, which they say may help explain the genetic mechanisms underlying bees' social behavior. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at USU.edu slash science.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utime Tom Williams. We're talking about a very important topic. What are the prospects for peace in the Middle East? And the authors of a new book overcoming the retributive nature of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, say that they have uh, tested and proven a, a process, uh, getting together participants from Israel and from Palestine uh, over a, a nine-year period or, or more, looks like a 2006 to 2017. A um, process called the Analytic Hierarchy Process, and we've been talking about that. Um, I want to start with, uh, this segment with Professor Giora. So Professor Vargas uh, before the break uh, was filling in some of the, the gaps there. Uh, you both are, you know excited about this obviously. Uh, it, it is exciting. Um, but you say it's implementable. It's been proven in these groups. But you've both given the example of you've got to keep the, uh, the participants anonymous because of the extremists, right? The, the, the participants would be in trouble if uh, extremists got uh, wind that they were even attempting compromise. Um, so I guess that points to the fact that there have to be the right conditions to implement this, and I wonder what those would be. How, how do you overcome extremism on both sides?
1: I started with Neil, with Vargas.
0: Uh, you first.
1: So, as usual, Tom, um, right, this is not our first rodeo together, the two of us, um, which is why it's always such a pleasure to be, um, to chat with you. In many ways, you put your, your the, the, whatever the head, and the nail, you hit the nail on the head. The, and, I, and I don't know if Vargas would agree with the word I'm going to use, what I would call the selling, the marketing, the positioning. Of, of an undertaking like this, it, it's hard, absolutely. But, but because the, the final product reflects a, a significant effort by moderate, thoughtful, um, informed individuals, it clearly presents decision-makers with the kind of, of opportunity that, frankly, has not been made available in in many, many years. Full stop. You're 100% correct that it requires the willingness of of leadership to openly engage in something that's different because of the analytical hierarchy model. But on the other hand, because of the uniqueness of it, under the right circumstances, and, you know, Lord knows politics in the Middle East are beyond complicated. Under the right circumstances with leaders who are open to a different approach, I have no doubt in my mind that our work product um, can effectively, not 100%, there's no 100%, but can effectively fill a, a, a tragic gap. And I think that because it reflects this, this unique approach that Vargas has, has so clearly explained, I would think that for, for leaders, it would enable them to, to, as much as possible, to minimize, not 100% again, but to minimize the noise that's inevitable to a process like this, and we all know that. But that's why, you know, take me, Tom, as an example, you know, I've worked on this with Vargas and others. For over nine years, it it was—I mean—it is frankly an extraordinary commitment that we all made, and we made it because we genuinely believed that there was an opportunity here to do something that is critical and different and implementable. But you're right, totally, that it requires the kind of of, um, political slash um, um, social personalities, circumstances that. Are not always available, but when we hit, hit the sweet spot, when there is that sweet spot, I'm convinced that this model is the way forward. I have no doubt about
0: that. Professor Vargas, so, uh, so, same yeah, so same then question. question maybe, then I have a different. Help
2: uh, Amos uh, be a little more, more more concise. So the question is, and this is a debate that we always had when we were doing conducting this process was, is what you're getting in this particular situation with this set of uh representatives from both parties is it a solution or is a, or it's sort of like a prototype <laughs> so do you do you think that you got a solution or you think that you're proposing a method that will lead you to a solution i was always advocate that because i knew the people that this was this could be the solution but if you really want to be uh be more political what what well, could be done, and this has to be willingness for both parties is you, ask, you assign representatives from both parties. You like, don't have to choose them like we did, right? They decide themselves, and then we take and we conduct the process with those representatives and show that very likely they will get as much as close as what we have, because little by little they will have to work through the process. Of course, they get guided by, by us. But, um the point is that that you you need to get those representatives. now, we do not choose the representatives in our case, we conducted the selection ourselves because we don't know any better but uh, I think that if you if you take the actual representatives from from the Palestinian side and the actual representatives from the from the Israeli side and you conduct this process, you should get to something very similar, and the reason is it is, is that the ingredients are all there. And we know their preferences, their priorities. So the question is why didn't they do that before? Well, because the traditional negotiation is like they used to. They put them all in a room, and the Americans say, You negotiate, you step out and you negotiate. That was the idea. But that's not the way to do it because they will just fight. They will just incriminate each other with things. They say things that, Oh, but you did this and you did that. But they didn't really think. They didn't really think about how do you actually do it. That's the point. So, so the solution to the problem is, in my opinion, we have to get the parties to decide on negotiators, and then bring them together with this process. And we facilitate the, the what it is, and it could be a transparent. A process showing people what we get little by little. So, I think the most important in this situation would be to show that their representatives are not violating any of their principles. Like, people are afraid in Palestine that avoiding the refugee issues, for example, right? The, the right to return, things like that. They talk about that, and, they, and the moment that somebody says something like that, they get in trouble because they are not representing everybody. That's the point. So if the people are willing to accept the representatives, which can be accepted by voting, they can be selected by doing the vote, uh, then they are truly representatives. And at that point, they can negotiate and then take it to a referendum, see if they like what they get. But that would be my take of it. That would be the way I would do it. Not just us selecting the representatives, but they, they each party selects them And we conduct the process
0: for free, by the way. Um, we don't charge That's right. Anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead.
1: My, my, my talk shop Professor Vargas, has heard this story from me. You know who knows how many times. When I was involved in, in official negotiations while serving in the, in the IDF, um, I was sent to uh, to DC. So with Israelis and Palestinians, and we we sat in a room that was you know the size of a football stadium, which is a terrible way to engage in any human interaction. And there were three representatives from the American government. All with the same first name, which was obviously not correct. None of them had last names, which was horrible. And they all had little pads of paper. And so, rather than speaking us Israelis to Palestinians, you know, directly, even though we had to be yelling because of the size of the room, we were talking to each other through the Americans. It was like this triangle, which was awful. And whoever whoever thought of that idea, I don't know what they were thinking. That's a non-starter. I mean, that's just not the way to engage in negotiations. What we've done here is something that is direct interaction using the, the model that, 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 that Professor Vargas has very clearly outlined. And that's just such a different approach, which is why, again, I'll stop with this. I genuinely believe that for decision makers, what we've presented here is it's hard. Yeah, of course it's hard. But it's far more implementable than, than this odd tri- triangular relations discussions where the sides are not directly speaking to each other. Because at the end of the day, as we all know, historically, that doesn't really work. Even though there are signed documents, at the end of the day, that not 100% direct discussions, negotiations, at the end of the day, don't carry the day.
0: Mm-hmm. Professor Vargas, I, I, yes. I, want to, yes. uh, I want to follow up. It's very interesting to me um, a couple things. Uh, first of all, you're, you're measuring, right? You're trying to put an objective right. view on this rather than subjective and you, you you told me earlier in the hour that it's very important that both sides are able to see under this objective measure not only what they want, but, but what the other side wants. I wonder why that's so important.
2: Well, because uh, if, you, if you just have... Uh, let's assume that husband and wife are, are trying to get divorced, right? And they're going to divide their assets. And what do they do? They make a list of things, and they choose things, right? And they say... And they fight about the dog. I want the dog. The dog is most important, more important than the maybe the bank account. <laughs> so the question is, well, how important is it? What, what kind of what, how is it much more important? So that's what measurement comes about. Is it is strongly more important, or extremely more important, or barely more important? So we build something called relative scales. So imagine. Uh, you are yourself in, a, in let's, let's assume that the historic people, people before they have any computers and any measurement scales. And what did they do? They, let's assume they want to find out how heavy stones are. So they take the stones in their hands and say, oh, you can do it yourself. You say, oh, one head is a little heavier than the other, right? Now, as long as you can lift it, you can you can compare it in pairs. These pair comparisons get together in a mathematical structure called a matrix from which we extract a set of priorities. And there are many experiments that have shown that perception actually represents physical laws. I I can show you some of the simplest experiments that were conducted in the 70s. So the beauty of it is that when you have scales, you can reproduce results. But when you don't have scales, like, for example, love and comfort, and, and comfort in terms of temperature and things like that, a this, this scale is something that the society agrees upon, like, for example, the, the mile or the yard. We agreed what that means, right? The, the meter is somewhere in, in, in Paris in a, made of a certain material. The, time, the concept of time, for example, right? Those are things that we agreed upon. But if we don't agree on that, then like everybody has their own scale. Well, if you take a group of people trying to represent to solve a problem, they can all agree in the group as to what their scale is for them at, for that particular issue, and that's what this is based on. And the measurement means tells me, I think that you think this is extremely more important for you, not as much for me. So, if, if, knowing that, there may be some some sort of a balance with other issues. Right, that's what's happening here. So it turns out that when you look at the concessions, the concessions were paired, paired in the sense that. Uh, one party gives a concession, the other party gives another concession. When the party gives a concession, uh, it ha- has a cost for them, but it has a perception of what the other gains and vice versa. So each party gets a gain-loss ratio for that pair of concessions that they trade. And that was done for all possible pairs. So it involves not just the comparisons, but then you just have to use a mathematical model in a computer because it's too many different possibilities and go optimization. And finally, we get a set of ones that we say, oh, these are pretty close. Means both parties perceive that they're getting the same as the other with the trade. That is the reason why measurement is so important. If you don't have measurement, all we do is we can argue all you want. And there's no no solution. You never get to compromise. The one who somebody gives up something, but how far are you apart from the other person? So we need to have a measurement, relative measurement, because there are no scales for everything. It's called intangibles, if you think about it. So there are not so many things that we measure in real life, about 200-plus things that we measure with the scales. The majority of what we do is they have a feeling for it, right? But that's what, that's what the leaders are supposed to have, a vision, which is a feeling for it, because they don't have a scale, so that's that's tough because it, it's a subjective scale for each person. But when you put a group together, the group can make a decision. And there is technology out there are group decision making that people like a lot. The Chinese love love the theory, the hierarchy process, because it's direct. It's, it's directed towards using group decision making. And remember, nobody wants to make a decision there individually. It has to be a group. So this is exactly the situation. You have a group of people who want to trade with another group of people, concessions. And I know that in, in, uh, in the Middle East the word concession is not a good word because somebody said that they conceded it too much. So, so they call it, call it trade-offs if you want. So the book has to carry both words around. But basically that's the reason why you need, measure. you need relative measurement because you need to find out what do I gain from you? Is it the same that you gain from me? And if we agree and we do it separately, but then we come together and we agree, oh, look at that. All of a sudden, we have the same perception. So now maybe we can start talking about compromise. That's the reason why measurement is so important.
0: Well, let's take uh, another brief break. We'll come back with a, uh, a brief final segment uh, with uh, our guests, uh, who are Amos Giora, who's a professor. In the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah, Luis Vargas, Professor of Operations, Decision Sciences, and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Pittsburgh's Joseph M. Katz Graduate School of Business. They are among the authors of a new book called Overcoming Retributive Nature of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. And that's what we've been talking about today. And there's a Zoom event on the same topic, Tuesday beginning at noon, um, it's a Zoom webinar, free uh, to the public, but uh, you must register. We'll have a link up on our website. You can go to University of Utah Law School website as well for information on that. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you
1: and the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, creators of the Utah Women and Leadership podcast series. Information and episodes are available at utwomen.org.
3: This week on This American Life, when Dr. Benjamin Gilmer started his new job, he knew that his predecessor in the job was in prison for murder. So he didn't expect so many patients to tell him what a great guy the predecessor was. He was great. Absolutely.
1: I mean, if he was over here right
2: now, my kids would still be going over there.
3: How could such a good doctor go bad? Dr. Gilmer tries to find out this week. Tune in Saturday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio.
4: Thinking of how to shed that extra holiday weight? Diet culture tells us with a little willpower and a discounted gym membership, losing a few pounds will improve our lives in every measurable way. But science says diets don't work. And beyond that, body weight is hardly the best marker of health. I'm Anita Rao. Join me for Deconstructing Diet Culture, a special from Embodied in North Carolina Public Radio.
0: Saturday afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Amos Giora, a professor at the uh, University of Utah, and uh, and Luis Vargas, professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, they're among the authors of a book called Overcoming Retributive Nature of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. We're talking about prospects for peace in the Middle East uh, using a new uh, process. Um, and uh, we just have about five minutes left in this last segment, very brief last segment, so... Kind of move toward uh, final thoughts here, a couple of minutes uh, for each professor. Uh, so, Professor Giora, I wonder if you could take a couple of minutes to talk about, um, uh, you know, the, the, the prospect, looking to the future, prospects, uh, especially with a, a new government in Israel. I
1: have five minutes, or I have five years. How much? Uh,
0: you, <laughs> uh, well, actually, two, <laughs> two minutes for you and two minutes for Professor Vargas. So <laughs> a very brief uh, segment here. Go ahead.
1: I'll be really quick, Tom. Um, there's a new government in Israel, clearly the Prime Minister Bennett. Um, they're still feeling their way through um, being a government. It's a complicated coalition. Eight different parties are part of the coalition. Um, there are days that look stable, days that look a little bit less stable. There's no doubt that they're going to have to address the Palestinian issue, comma, at some point. And because it's a very different government than the Netanyahu government, thankfully, if there's a government that is positioned, because these are some of them are younger, Bennett's younger, for Mr. Lapid, who's the next prime minister, younger, a different generation, I would say that our approach actually is far better suited for them than it was um, for Netanyahu, and that's why, in that sense, this I stopped Tom. I am, in spite of, in spite of all the insights, I happen to be confident and um, optimistic.
0: Professor Vargas, uh, just a couple of minutes here at the end. What what, what would you most like folks to take away from uh, from this discussion of uh, of the book and this, this process?
2: I, I think that the necessity of a third party to balance the power of the two party in the, parties in the conflict, and I think that that is the United States. I think that without the United States, the parties might not come to the table. Any proposal put together by either party would not be accepted by the other. So this has to come from the from the middle, from the neutral. And since this was put together by a neutral party, we in the United States have the neutral party. I think that uh, that I have a I have a I'm trying to see if we can finally put this together in front of somebody in the U.S. government, the State Department, that actually does something with it, because I think it's worth uh, worth giving it a try at least.
0: Yeah, certainly, certainly. I uh, hope you hope you can. Um, we, the book is overcoming the retributive nature of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and there's a Zoom event, a Zoom webinar, uh, that uh, begins Tuesday at noon, and uh, that's titled "Prospects for uh, Prospects for the Middle East: Is a Peaceful Settlement Attainable?" Uh, that will involve professors Giora and Vargas. Uh, that's a free event, but you need to register. We'll have that link on our website. You can also go to S.J. Quinney College of Law, University of Utah website for information on that, um, that, that Zoom event, which again begins Tuesday at noon. Uh, we have had with us uh, Professor Luis Vargas, Professor of Operations, Decision Sciences, and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Pittsburgh's Joseph M. Katz Graduate School of Business. Professor Vargas, thank you so much. Thank you for having me and Amos. Uh, you're you're very welcome. And uh, we've had with us Amos Giora, professor in the S.J. Quinney College of Law at University of Utah. Thank you, Professor Giora.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.
4: Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, and get lost in space. It's many cultures, one sky, and as we look into that sky at dusk, we can still see Jupiter in the southwest and other December evening gems as well, including the big northern cross and Cygnus the Swan, which is nearly upright in the west-northwest as darkness falls. Also, Auriga the Charioteer rides high these evenings astride the Milky Way with the distant star pattern known as the Leaping Minnow and Big Capella high overhead, and down to the right in contrast, sparkling big, comforting blue Rigel and back in our own solar system as we've been reporting in space exploration NASA in partnership with the European Space Agency launched the Ariane rocket on its precise and powerful journey carrying the James Webb Space Telescope out beyond the orbit of the moon and at the time of this writing is about 744,000 miles from Earth going this far since Christmas Day with about 154,000 miles to go This is known to scientists as L2 or LaGrange point. It's a balancing point between the orbits of the Earth and the Sun, where the spaceship telescope will enter a large orbit. And on top of this feat, the telescope still moving very fast in several intricate moves has been fully deployed. NASA has also deployed an X-ray telescope that will peer into black holes and neutron stars. This space telescope, however, is in Earth orbit. Also, the Hubble Space Telescope is still looking way, way out in space. Maybe we'll have to dub this the year of the space telescope. Meanwhile, on Mars, the Perseverance rover, which has been crawling around inside the 28-mile Jezero Crater, which harbors an ancient lake and river delta from billions of years ago, looking for signs of Mars life and collecting several dozen samples. Recently, the six-wheeled rover collected sample number six and has a pebble now stuck in its titanium collection tube. JPL is trying to clear its throat. throat. Meanwhile, the little Mars helicopter Ingenuity should have had its 19th flight a couple of days ago. Stay tuned. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. Today, we'll travel to northern Montana and visit the Blackfoot tribe. The Blackfoot believe the above people, or sky beings, were the first creations. The first sky being is Natosi, the sun, who is highly venerated by the Blackfoot people and ruler of the sky people. Other sky beings include the moon goddess. Natosi, the sun god, is married to the moon goddess and their son is the morning star hero. To the Blackfoot, the stars in the sky or sky beings are sacred spirits and live in the sky world far above the clouds with their own society and land. So if you're out on a dark night and there's a slight breeze and a big puffy clouds hanging low and heat lightning pulsing on the horizon and lightning talking between the clouds and a few stars in the sky, feel the energy of the sky beings around you. As we look up, look around and get a little lost in space, Skywatcher Leo T, on UPR, with translator stations statewide and streaming live.
3: I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. More than 2 billion people around the world cook over open fires or on simple stoves that are fueled by charcoal, wood, coal, or animal dung. Burning these fuels releases carbon pollution into the atmosphere, which warms the climate. And when people cook this way indoors, they breathe in smoke and toxic fumes that can cause COPD, lung cancer, and other diseases. The World Health Organization estimates that this household air pollution contributes to almost 4 million premature deaths each year. That is unacceptable. There should be no excuse for people still dying from indoor air pollution. Wanjira Mathai is vice president and regional director for Africa at the World Resources Institute, and she's on the leadership council of the Clean Cooking Alliance. The group works to improve people's access to more efficient modern stoves that emit less air pollution. Despite many options, Mathai says cost remains a barrier for a lot of people. We have to make it possible through our legislation to manufacture locally and have the availability of these technologies at a price point that people can actually afford so they can cook meals without worrying about harming their health or the climate. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org.
1: And you can hear Climate Connections on Utah Public Radio during Morning Edition weekdays at 840, 49 and during All Things Considered at...
3: 34 at 342 here on Utah Public Radio. Once upon a time there were two genders. What pronoun do you like going by? But not anymore. My name is Henya, and I I use C pronouns. They and it. Do you kinda get it? Yeah. Cool. What pronouns do you use? Join us next time on to the best of our knowledge. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST MOAB, KCEU PRICE, kusu FM LOGAN, also heard at upr.org.
4: On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll travel to the remote and rocky islands of Cape Verde, 300 miles off the west coast of Africa to hear enchanting mornas, funanas, and coladeras. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for Cape Verde, the next Putumayo World Music Hour.
3: Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.